Alex has prayed, so we won't pray again. You know the text, John chapter 17. Now this is the title. Jesus, a Savior who prays for us. Jesus, a Savior who prays for us. Let me introduce my message to you this morning by saying this. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. You see, Jesus embodied the perfect idea of the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. He not only ruled over a kingdom as a king, like David and Solomon did, but as king, he rules over the eternal kingdom of God. Amen? He not only delivers God's word as a faithful prophet, but he is God's word. And he is the prophet foretold by Moses. And as we'll see here this morning in John chapter 17, Jesus is the perfect priest, the perfect mediator between God and humankind. And therefore, there isn't anything else or anyone else necessary to join us to God or God to us anymore. By faith in Jesus Christ, the breach between God and humankind that was caused by sin is bridged by the cross and mediated by the priest of God, who is Jesus Christ. And thus the author of Hebrews writes these words, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This morning, we're going to see exactly this. This morning, we're not looking at Jesus as king or Jesus as prophet, but Jesus as priest by way of John chapter 17. Jesus is a Savior who prays for us. Let's begin with the first of three points this morning. It's going to be taken from the verses that Alex read for us, verses 1 through 5. It's this, Jesus prays for glory. Jesus prays for glory. Out of the gate, Jesus lifts up his eyes in prayer, not uncommon. Psalm 123, verse 1 says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes into heaven where you reside. He begins his prayer with a request for glory. Father, the hour has come, Jesus prays. We know that the hour is a reference to the exact time of Jesus' crucifixion according to God's perfect providence. You see, it's important that you and I appreciate the fact that Jesus did not die accidentally. Jesus' ministry did not become something that he could not manage, and consequently he ended up on the cross. That's a liberal view of the death of Jesus Christ. When we read the scriptures, we learn that when Jesus died upon the cross at the hands of the Romans, even with the betrayal of Judas, it was according to God's perfect plan. Amen. 
Jesus says, the hour has come. You can look back at John chapter 12, verse 23 to support the idea that the hour is a reference to the time of Jesus' death on behalf of God's people. And then Jesus continues with this. You can look at it with your eyes. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over how much flesh? All flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He's referring to himself here, Jesus is. And this is eternal life. Get this. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now this isn't new. In the theme of themes in John's gospel, the theme of glory permeates the entire gospel. Here are a couple of references that you might want to jot down. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's another one. John chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee. This is when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding reception. John says, this is the first sign. We know that there are seven in the gospel. This is the first sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And it manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. Then in John chapter 12, verse 28, Father, glorify your name, he prays. So we see the theme permeating John's gospel. Well, the next question is what is glory? Simple. Glory is a manifestation of God's goodness and greatness and grandeur. It's God's weightiness. That's literally what the word glory means, to be weighty. God is glorified when he is put where he belongs, which is first, amen? Amen. Are we okay today? You got to make up for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in their pajamas, home, playing it safe today. We got to be nice and loud. Okay, thank you, Jay. Okay, so where do we put God? How is he glorified? When he's placed in a place of priority and we live happily under his sovereignty and his gracious disposition toward us and when his will is done, when people honor him and worship him, church, that's when God is glorified. And further, Jesus defines Christianity in verse 3. This is important. Look at it with your eyes. In verse 3, Jesus synthesizes Christianity. He says, this is eternal life. That they, that is Christians, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Church, there is no eternal life or Christianity if we dislocate the Father from the Son, or the Son from the Father. We've been camping out on this topic for a few weeks now because Jesus has been emphasizing the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, hasn't he? When I go to the Father, he will send in my name, the Helper. So we know that in order to be a sound, healthy Christian at all, you have to be a Trinitarian Christian. 
There's no such thing as a Christian that does not hold to the Trinity. If you are a quote-unquote Christian who does not hold to the Trinity, you're a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. You're not a Christian. We hold to a Trinity, not because we've conjured it up in our doctrinal conversations, but because the Trinity is biblical. So Jesus says here in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you and that they know me. Too many people think that a statement like, I believe in God, is a revolutionary statement. Like they should be congratulated for it or something along those lines for a so-called faith like this. No, not at all. Here, Jesus presses that position and he clarifies something for us. To believe in God, say amen if you're listening, to believe in God is not enough. That's like believing that a painting has a painter, Hollis. Every painting has a painter. And so our creation has a creator. This is not complicated. As the old philosopher said, someone was walking through the woods and came across a watch. And he said, one of two things could have happened. Somebody dropped their watch. Or through the evolutionary process, the pines and the acorns and the grass came together and made this intricate object. It just happens to exist now in the woods. There are tons of scientists and there are tons of non-Christians who believe in a higher power, a quote-unquote God. Aristotle called him the unmoved mover. But this doesn't make anyone a Christian. To be a Christian is not only to honor God the Father, but it is also to honor God the Son. It's not only to honor God the Son, but to have respect for God the Father. You see, we cannot dislocate one from the other. To be a Christian with its blessings and its benefits, we must believe in the Father and the Son, and indirectly, their roles in the progress of redemption. This is the first of Jesus' three-part prayer this morning. He prays, first of all, for glory. That leads us to our second point, and that is this. Jesus prays also for the disciples. This is verses 6 through 19. If you look at your text quickly, I will read it. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. I love this antecedent-type conversation Jesus is having with God. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. And I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me because they are yours. Wow. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I love that. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, 
which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world I do not ask that they be taken out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. So sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate this. I consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, I read this and I go, man, I just left so much out. Anyway, Jesus, in the second part of his three-part prayer, prays for his disciples. So this is the next portion that we see, this prayer from Jesus to God for the disciples. And there are a few things that he prays for when he's praying for his disciples specifically. But first, who are the disciples? Well, he says in verse 6 that they are, if you look at verse 6, they are the, quote, people whom God gave me out of the world. A disciple is someone whom God has given to his son. In other words, the people Christ saves are people God has given to him to save. This is not complicated logic. If you are in Christ today, it's because God gave you to Jesus to save. Look at verse 6 again. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You see that antecedent type language? They were yours. In other words, before Jesus came, God had a plan for those people he would give to him. They were yours. And I came and you gave them to me. And now they're mine. We could probably stop here. And your tree would be sufficiently rattled. To consider the sovereignty of God in salvation. To consider the plan of God in salvation. To consider the man-centered gospel that has become so popularly accepted in the United States of America and the West in general. I recently heard a pastor this week stand up in front of the church and say, what God wants for you is for you to be happy. This is what glorifies God. You don't come to church for him. You come to church for you. I hope that in the year, almost two years that I've been here, I have, if you possess that, stripped you of that theology. It is not about you. 
It is about him. It is not about me. It is about him. To such an extent that when Jesus prays, he says, I have them now, but I know they were yours before I got here. There is something about the plan of God that you and I might find unintelligible, but that doesn't make it less true. The plan of God's redemptive purpose is God's plan, not ours. Now, we're going to get to how we play a part of it in the third part. But for now, suffice it to say that God's people, Christ's people, are those God has given to Jesus, I love this, out of the world. Come across this idea already in John. A couple of verses to mention to you. John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I love that. Stages. All the Father gives to me will come to me. And all who come to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 44. No one comes to me. <laughs> Do you get this? It kind of sounds redundant, doesn't it? I think Jesus is trying to hammer something home. No one comes to me unless the Father draws them. We stand up here and we sing that song. I have decided to follow Jesus. All 32 verses. I have decided to follow. No, you didn't. Some of the worst theology we have in the hymn book. According to John... God made that decision for you. He drew you. That's why you decided. Be careful where you put the word I when it comes to salvation. And of course, we know that we will never be cast out. Because if salvation didn't start with us, salvation is not going to finish with us. Now, does that take away the responsibility of faith? No! Does that take away our human moral culpability to our God? Of course not. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. So on the one hand, we have the human responsibility. And on the other hand, we have this revelation from Jesus that if you're in Christ, it's because God had done something in you. How do you make the two sink? I don't. This is what we call an antinomy in theology. Two truths that are simultaneously true but not contradictory. You just have to live with it. God's calling in someone's life and his drawing of someone precedes their faith in Jesus. Jesus doesn't look at people and say, it looks to me like if I were to give him an opportunity with the gospel, he would believe it. I'm going to give him an opportunity. No! What Jesus is saying clearly and succinctly is that the reason we responded to the gospel if we're in Christ is because God drew us. God didn't draw us because we would respond. We responded because God drew us. But in this prayer, 
for the disciples, which are whom? Those people that God drew to Jesus. Jesus prays three things. How many? Three Three things. Write this down. First, he prays for their knowledge of the word. Jesus prays for the knowledge, for their knowledge, excuse me, of the word. Now, Jesus does something interesting here, and I want you to see it with your own eyes. I'm hoping that you find it as powerful as I did. Two things that I want you to note under this idea of Jesus praying for their knowledge of the word. Look at verse 8. Say amen when you're there. Verse 8 says, I have given them the words that you gave me. Now, fast forward to verse 14. Say amen when you're there. I have given them your word. You see this? I gave them the words that you gave me. I have given them your word. Verse 8, verse 14. I've given them the words that you gave me. Verse 14, I've given them your word. What this is saying is incredibly interesting. Two phrases that are virtually identical, right? You good with me? Virtually identical. However, there is a large significance in their small difference. In verse 8, the word remata in the Greek is used. It means literally words, as in the words that construct the sentence. I have given them the words. But then in verse 14, logos is used. I have given them your word. It's more like message or speech. The point is simple. Get this. I think what Jesus is praying is that they will know and be knowledgeable about God's word. But in his prayer, as he's praying for his disciples and their knowledge of the word, what he's telling the Father is that, verse 14, he not only gave the disciples the message, the speech, but verse 8, Jesus even used the exact words that God the Father wanted him to use. You might be going, are you serious? You just spent two minutes on that? That blew my mind. I think that's amazing. Because Jesus could have used the same word twice. I think Jesus used different words here because I think Jesus is telling the Father, you know, Father, that I didn't only use the exact words that you wanted me to use. I gave them the message. I not only gave them the message, but I even used the exact words you wanted me to use. Church, when it came to the preaching ministry of Jesus, God the Father did not slack. We neglected to our own peril. Listen, there is a direct correlation between our biblical knowledge and our spiritual health. If you are spiritually anemic, if you are spiritually weak, I can guarantee you, you aren't spending time in the Word and in prayer. You can say what you want to me. I don't care. If you're spending time in the Word and prayer, I don't care what you're going up against you'll be spiritually healthy. Flip side, doesn't matter what you're not going up against. If you aren't spending time in word and prayer, you're not healthy. J.C. Ryle wrote this, 
ignorance of the Bible is the root of all error. You want things to go wrong in a hurry. Neglect your Bible. Jesus prays for his disciples and that they would know the word. Please note, the word of God doesn't work like a magic spell, by the way. Doesn't work like a magic. You can't use the word of God like a spell. You can't ignore God, forsake the assembly of his people, neglect personal worship, and then put a verse on Facebook and expect everybody to say, that means something. Listen, don't neglect putting verses on Facebook. But don't just put verses on Facebook. I know you know what I'm talking about. You may even be guilty of this very thing. God may be speaking to you right now saying, yeah, I know you appreciate my word, but you're not living in my word. We can't only read the word. We must live the word. And living the word includes the commands that are in there. And so we can't, we can't ignore the Lord's day. We can't ignore private worship. We can't ignore reading and then put our favorite verse in Isaiah that says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. God's got me on this. Does he? You neglect him every hour of every day until you have a trial. And then all of a sudden he's your God? Listen, Christian, that's not how relationships work. Knowing the word means walking in the word. Let me say that again. Knowing the word means walking in the word. That's the first thing that Jesus prays for his disciples. Second, he prays for their protection from the evil one. And of course, the evil one is the devil. Verse 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is even part of the Lord's prayer. You are familiar with that, I'm sure. The Lord's prayer finishes like this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Listen, I want you to note this. Jesus doesn't pray that his disciples would be taken out of the world. Jesus doesn't pray that his disciples would be taken out of the world, but instead that they would be protected from the evil one. What a difference. Why is it important that his disciples remain in the world? We're going to get to that in a little more detail in the third point. But for now, suffice it to say, in God's providence, it's God's plan that the disciples remain in the world to witness to Christ's glory in the gospel. They must remain in the world to witness to Christ's glory in the gospel. I feel like I'm worrying you out a little bit today. Are we okay? This is a lot. Are you drinking from a fire hydrant? It's, it's, a, it's a lot. I get it. Let's just take a breath. Okay. I can feel it while I'm preaching it. I can go, I, I feel like our, we have noses above the level right now, right? Let's just take a break. Everybody good? Love you. You look amazing. You online, I don't know what you look like, but I'm glad you're with us. Okay. Thank you. Henry, he is such a lover. 
Why is it important that Jesus says, Lord, I don't pray that you remove him from the world, but that you protect him from the evil one? For this reason, the disciples witness to the world about Christ's glory in the gospel. Now, I want to turn a small corner here, and I want to draw an applicable lesson for those of you who are parents. I think, parentally speaking... If Jesus was the parent and disciples were the children, we would be saying, please, Lord, take them out of the world. Put your hedge of thorns around them. Jesus is not worried about his disciples getting into scuffs. And as parents, we have to see the spiritual responsibility of entrusting our children as Jesus entrusts his disciples to a father who cares for them. Do not protect your children from responsibility. These disciples have a responsibility. Do not protect your children from a knowledge of the word. These disciples have a responsibility to know the word. Do not protect your children from asserting themselves in situations where there is disagreement. These disciples are going to have to do that if they're going to preach the gospel. Now, as parents, we don't want anything terrible to happen to our children. Amen? But terrible things are going to happen to your children. You have an option. You can entrust your children to a faithful creator who loves them. Or you can try to do something that God never intended for you to do. In this world, you will have tribulation. But have no fear, I've overcome the world. When it comes to discipleship, The first and foremost thing that we must appreciate is that the discipleship begins in the home. Don't bring your kids to Alex or to me and say, I don't want to do it. You do it. We will fail. And we will fail miserably. We will fail and fail miserably because it was not God's design for discipleship to begin at the church. Discipleship happens at the church. But, but, excuse me, discipleship begins at your dining room table. If you can't do it there, the probability that it's going to happen here is extremely low. Jesus doesn't ask that his disciples be pulled from the world. Jesus says, keep them in the world, but protect them from the evil one. Why is it important that they remain in the world? It is important that they remain in the world simply because salvation hasn't been provided for humankind in any other method than that of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The third thing that Jesus prays is that they would be sanctified. 
He prays for their knowledge, their protection, and finally, that they would be sanctified for their sanctification. Look at verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, Jesus says. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctification is a fancy theological word for holiness or separation. Holiness or separation. Sanctify them means make them holy, separate them. That's just the generic definition of the word to sanctify. Two phases of sanctification. How many? Two. The first phase is instantaneous. The first phase of sanctification is instantaneous. When we become Christians, we are regenerated. When we're reborn, born again, Jesus says, we are sanctified once and for all. And that is, we're separated from the world in the eyes of God. Our status forever is changed in that instantaneous sanctification. The second part or phase of sanctification is progressive. In other words, we grow day by day, more and more holy, as God the Holy Spirit works on us and makes us more like Jesus. Two phases to sanctification. The first phase, when we're regenerated, when we're born again, immediately we are separated in God's eyes from the world. He sees the world, he sees Christians. Happens, just like that. But there's a second phase to sanctification, and that phase is this. Do I look more like Jesus 10 years after walking with Jesus than I did before I met Jesus? Progressive sanctification. That's why Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. Because if they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and they're fruitless, the possibility is they're not Christians. Why? Because progressive sanctification teaches us that if you know Jesus... You get changed by Jesus. In no other place is this seen more clearly than in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says, By a single offering, that is the death of Jesus Christ, by a single offering, God has perfected, get that word, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you get that? What's interesting is, in English, they choose to translate it this way. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, the word is the root of hagias, which is the root of sanctified. So he actually doesn't use different words there. He actually says this, literally. By one time, or one offering, that is by the death of Jesus, God has sanctified for all time those he is sanctifying. Did you get that? He has sanctified for all time those he is sanctifying. So we get both phases of sanctification right there in Hebrews 10, 14. There's a sense in which when we came to meet Jesus, God immediately sanctified us once and for all and then started cleaning us up. And every day, God, the Holy Spirit, works on us to make us more and more like Jesus. Now, he didn't only pray for his glory, and he didn't only pray these three specific things for his disciples. Amazingly, 
Jesus even prayed for you and me. Look at it, if you would, please, verses 20 through 26. Our final point, Jesus prays for future disciples. I do not ask for these only, these disciples only. I'm not asking for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me, get it, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Finally, after the Father prays for his glory during the hour, and after praying for the disciples that are there in his immediate proximity and time, he prays for future disciples. Church, there's a succession with discipleship. There's a succession with discipleship. Jesus led these disciples to the gospel. And now they believed. After their belief, now these disciples, having believed and been regenerated by the gospel, they are going to lead others to the gospel. And so on and so forth. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in my name through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me, etc., etc., all the way back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying for you. Scratch that. Better yet, Jesus was praying for me. I need that prayer. Christianity, like the root from which it springs, Judaism, is a discipleship-oriented faith. In the Old Testament, discipleship begins in the home. already previewed this to you. If you think about this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 6, it reads like this. These words that I command you, Moses says, shall be on your heart. Where? You shall teach them diligently. How? Diligently. To your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, 
And when you get up, you shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write, on, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When we realize the value of discipleship, it can't be apart from the fact that we are Christians today because Jesus discipled his disciples and his disciples discipled some disciples and they discipled some disciples and they discipled so that in Miami 2021 during this ridiculous time in our life we know Christ because the discipleship succession was not broken What happens if it was broken? Would we be here today? Would you be in the presence of God with God's people worshiping him if a generation of disciples said, you know what? Let's not do this anymore. The answer from Jesus is no. The reason we can hold to the succession of disciples is because Jesus prayed that God would sanctify his church by his word and protect them from the evil one. Not from tribulation, not from trial, not from hardship, but from the evil one. So that today in 2021 in South Florida, thousands of miles from the seed of Christianity, we can know that we are here because our high priest prayed for us. Now, my question for you is this. Will you rely on others to do your job? Or will you do what Christ has called you to do? It doesn't matter if you have children or not. The principles of Deuteronomy 6, the principles of Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That command is not for parents. That command is for all Christians. My point is, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if your kids are buck wild, but you're really known well at church. You better disciple your kids at home. Now, that doesn't mean if you're a great parent, your kids won't go buck wild. Sometimes kids go buck wild. Why do I keep saying buck wild? Sometimes our kids don't walk in the path that we put down for them. Every single person must do their own believing. That's what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said there's two things that every person must do on their own. They must do their own believing, and they must do their own dying. You can't believe for your children, but what you can do is remind your children of what God has done who God is, the value of the gospel, the fact that the gospel saves sinners like us. Mom, Dad, you aren't perfect, by the way. You're a miserable sinner. You might fake your kids out, but you ain't faking me out. You're not faking God out. The children he has entrusted to you might be your biology, but they belong to him. And how you steward your house will one day put your feet before him for an answer. How you steward your children will one day call you into account. 
so that you will give an answer to the God who entrusted those things to you. Now, you might have made a lot of mistakes like me. You might be in a situation where you need to finish this worship service and get in the car and go, I need to apologize to you. I'm not a perfect person. I promise with God's strength, I will do better. If you've never said that to your children, if your children have never heard you say that, shame on you. Shame on a parent that sets up a perfectionistic household for their children that isn't rooted in a gospel of grace. You better show your children how to pray. You better show your children how to repent. The way you show your children how to repent is not do as I say, not as I do, but you better demonstrate what repentance looks like to your children. You better say to your children, your father was wrong, and I apologize, and I hope you'll forgive me. So that your children can say, I can go to God with confidence and say, your daughter or your son was wrong. Will you forgive me? And know that there is grace sufficient with that heavenly father to provide forgiveness. If you don't demonstrate the gospel, I don't care how much of the gospel you teach. Because if your children see one gospel but hear another, you're only going to raise conflicted and confused people. That's not what we want here at Cutler Ridge. That's not what we want in your home. What we must realize and appreciate is that the gospel is sufficient for an imperfect father like me. 